0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each day online can be a balancing act for parents. They want their children to safely explore the digital world, but also want to protect the precious offline moments they enjoy together. That's why the YouTube Kids app offers families a safer and simpler online video experience for children. As well as allowing parents to set limits on screen time, it also allows parents to choose a content library for their child based on age, or start from scratch, and handpick videos and channels for their child to watch. To find out more, download the app today. Search YouTube Kids. Hello, and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life, and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator, I'm delighted today to be joined by Michael Wolfe, who is a great American journalist and author of many books, including most recently, Two Famous, The Rich, The Powerful, The Wishful, The Notorious, The Damned, 20 Years of Columns, Essays and Reporting. Michael, it's a great pleasure to read this book because for me it sums up a lot about what I think about America, which is that sort of fame has consumed... American culture. And as a result, fame has consumed world culture. And I think you are the, I'm going to sound like a flatter here, but you are the best writer on fame. So it's, it's sort of perfect combination to read you on all these incredible subjects. And the last podcast we did together was about Trump. But I think we probably have to start with him because in a way, he's the best representation of fame eating itself alive in American life.
1: Well, yes, yes. I mean, he is either the end game of fame or opening a new chapter to horrors yet to be imagined.
0: (laughs) I mean, there's lots of people in the book and there's a chapter on The Spectator, which I think we need to come to. But I don't think he's your favourite famous person. I think he's probably the one you've been most obsessed with. But my hunch is it's either Rudy or Bloomberg or another New York figure who's who's the famous person that you're most fascinated by in your book
1: That would be hard to say. I mean, one of the things about famous people or people seeking to be famous is that they are drama queens. So they are compelling spectacles. I mean, which is in a way their whole point. So who is the most compelling spectacle? You know, I mean, certainly Trump is the most is the most successful spectacle. I mean, he is hardly alone. Yes, Rudy, yes, Bloomberg, yes, Tucker Carlson, yes Jared, yes, Steve Bannon. And then, you know, this book goes back through really pieces that I've written over over 20 years. So, yes, Tina Brown. Yes, Ariana Huffington. Yes, Andrew Cuomo. Yes, Hillary Clinton. This is quite a stew.
0: <laughs> well, one thing I want to ask you about this is, in my experience of interviewing people, you worry when you write the piece about what they're going to think. And as far as I've been able to figure out, and I'm, again, not trying to be a flatter, you don't seem to worry about what they're going to think. But yet,
1: your subject's like that, and it works for you. It's impossible to explain. Why do people keep speaking to me? I have no logical idea, except that I think they like the experience. I mean, in a sense, I'm unlike other journalists in which I tend not to ask any questions. I mean, I tend really to become fairly invisible. And I think people like that, of course they like that. These are people who like to be listened to and I am a good listener.
0: You know, the famous journalistic technique is not to speak if your subject pauses. Is that something you do? You just, you let them hang themselves as it were?
1: Uh, Yes, I would say, but I go even further than that. I mean, it's not as if I'm asking a question and then a person comes to the end and you you don't respond. It's as though I am not there. That is So that is the the best state for me. So is that, you know, a fly on the wall? You find yourself in a sort of an odd place here in which it's kind of unclear if I'm the fly on the wall or the guest at the banquet. And maybe it's not necessarily clear to anyone. Maybe it's sometimes not even clear to me at least at the moment, and then it becomes clear when I write this stuff, because I just do my job.
0: Well, I suppose a part of it is that you, you realize pretty early on that fame is, is the currency of journalism in a way. And you have this thing in your introduction where you say, it is hardly an overstatement to say that the media is only interested in people who are famous, or people it believes it can make famous. And that sentence stood out to me because it's sort of offensive, but also true that the media is not really interested in subjects or economics or anything like that. It's interested in people. Are you surprised that a lot of other journalists haven't made this
1: realisation? Well, I'm not sure they they haven't. I mean, I mean, certainly when one is around journalists in New York, which I seem to be around them all of the time, that's the perhaps unstated context. Who is who? Who is becoming what? Who is going to replace so-and-so? It is always who, which in a way has always been the subject of journalism and the conceits that we write about policy and we write about issues I think, is a conceit to cover over the fact that that we write about people. That's what other people want to read about. I mean, and that has compounded exponentially. So we live in a perpetual soap opera.
0: Yes. To go back to Trump briefly, with Trump, there was this phrase that comes up a couple of times of 100% name recognition, which I think is an amazing... I think it's what Jared Kushner says about Trump. Exactly, exactly. That's the sort of fantasy of fame world, isn't it? Is that you would be everybody would know who you are.
1: I think if you're a famous person and you aren't becoming more famous, then you are becoming less famous. So there is only one direction, Yes, fame or death.
0: Fame or death. And also, I mean, but that is madness, isn't it? And I think everybody in this book almost is mad. I mean, fame has rendered them mad. And, and the title of the book is Too Famous. And that comes from Hugh Grant, I think.
1: Everybody, yes, is is mad, and everybody is on the point of destruction or self-destruction because of their fame. Explain that a little bit more. Well, I mean, in effect, nobody really gets out of this alive, except so far Trump, and we will continue to follow that story. But everybody else is transformed in ways that are never wholly pleasurable or comfortable, or expected by by fame and fame pushes you to the point where the the reaction the inevitable reaction is that people try to destroy you the more famous you get the more people there are trying to destroy you and i'm tempted to say almost inevitably they succeed and
0: reading but it seems as a lot of these subjects have a relationship with fame a lot like an addict would have with alcohol they're fameaholics, and I think Trump is perhaps the greatest fameaholic ever,
1: and also the purest. You know, so at one point, which I relate here, and in the campaign, in the 2016 campaign, when I interviewed Trump, and he was still a long way. It still remained a preposterous notion that he would be president. And I said to him, I said, "Okay, come on. Why are you really doing this?" And he replied without hesitation and without any indication that this was unusual. He said, to be the most famous man in the world. Mm.
0: It's shameless, isn't it? Isn't that what it is? It's, he doesn't see any uh, shame in saying that.
1: Absolutely. And shamelessness is one of the components of, of fame. Yes. I mean, if, if you're full of shame, as most of us probably should be, then you run and hide rather than expose yourself.
0: Yes. A chapter I was very interested in, having met him a few times, is the one on Steve Bannon. I've met Steve Bannon a few times, and just your opening sentence on Steve Bannon I think is perfect. You say, can you be both a believer and a cynic? Because I think that really sums up who Steve Bannon is. He seems to be shilling a lot of times for various people. He's always in trouble. You never quite know what his agenda is. But at the same time, I think he passionately believes that he's saving the world from globalism.
1: And at the same time, he's also the narrator to his own experience, which essentially, and or at least often, refutes it. So there is nobody, in my experience, who is more clear-eyed and more devastating about Donald Trump.
0: Yes, he's been a very useful source to you because he, for it's some true. reason, he trusts you, even though he knows that you're going to, to, to tell the story he tells.
1: Exactly. And I can't, again, this is something else I can't quite unravel, except to think that in some, in some way he's participating in this. So it's sort of irony on top of irony. And in some way, he's so expressive, he understands so clearly that he wants people to know this, even if he is doing the other thing, even if he is complicit in what he's doing at the same time he's selling out whosoever he's doing it with. Do
0: you think in his heart of hearts, he is a white nationalist, as you call him, or or is it just easy to call him a white nationalist?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think he is. I think in his heart of hearts, if Steve Bannon could have whatever he wants, he is a media mogul. And he is manipulating audiences and understanding in the most cynical way what people want and what people will buy and that, that he can deliver it.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between Drudge, the Drudge Report, Matt Drudge and Steve Bannon? Because in the sort of internet age, that has been a very important and strange relationship.
1: You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that kind of cleaved, you know, Drudge essentially established the model for right-wing digital media. And then Andrew Breitbart extended that, followed that, refined it, and weaponized it. And then Steve took that over. And at, at which point also Drudge goes the other way. He rejects Trump. So I think it's an uncomfortable relationship, but it's also a relationship that Steve learned from. I mean, this has been it has been a very powerful way to speak to a certain audience and to attract a certain audience and it under underpins why Donald Trump got elected.
0: Yes. And another interesting aspect of Bannon is the presence of these Chinese billionaires. When he seems to be, you know, if you look at it at first glance, he seems to be one of the most anti-China people in the world. It, it, it confuses people that, I think.
1: Yes, but I think it turns out that he's one of the most pro-billionaire people in the world. So I think that's a contradiction, which is perhaps not resolved entirely, except to say that Steve needs the money.
0: Yeah. And again, we spoke about this last time, but again, I think a big theme of your work, although there are, there are non-New York chapters, but New York is the hub of a lot of what you write about. And it's where a lot of this exchange of money, media, fame happens.
1: Yes, this would be the fame marketplace. And I come out of New York Magazine, which which was a magazine that was created basically on this subject and on this basis and out of this interest.
0: One of the New York figures you talk about is Michael Bloomberg, who is in his own way, I think, as interesting as a Donald Trump, even though he's much less of a Cartoonish persona, and he's almost more interesting for being more publicly dull.
1: Yeah, I mean, he is Donald Trump. I mean, I always have said that sort of Donald Trump played a Michael Bloomberg character on television, but Michael Bloomberg was the real thing, and Donald Trump was the, the fake thing. But Bloomberg is also this confection of a rich man. I mean, if you take the proposition. I have as much money as it is possible to have, unlimited resources. And what do I want to be? Now, Michael Bloomberg sort of decided I have unlimited resources, so I can be something that I am by every measure not. I mean, Michael Bloomberg is a a really unlikely politician. He hates people, he doesn't get along with people. He has almost no tolerance for the hoi polloi. And yet he went out there and, I mean, he became the mayor and that was, to say the least, an unlikely event that happened only because 9-11 happened at just the moment which facilitated him to replace Rudy Giuliani who could not run again and who suddenly was the most famous man in the world and he selected Michael Bloomberg as his Replacement. Having said that, he then became a pretty good mayor, partly because he spent so much money making himself into a pretty good mayor. And then, you know, this run for president in 2000, which was, you know, again, the proposition was, and there has always been this proposition that exists out there that there is some amount of money that if you spend, you could be the president of the United States, a fantastic sum, which even no rich man has been willing to spend that much money. But Michael Bloomberg suddenly said, I am willing to spend that much money. There is no limitation on what I will spend to be the president of the United States. And for a moment, it looked like that actually might be possible. And it only, and well, the reason it turned out not to be possible, is that he showed himself in public. You know, he went on a debate and again showed himself to be the least likely politician in the nation.
0: I wanted to ask you about that presidential run because I thought it was extraordinary because I was in New York around that time and I remember going to a lot of places and everybody was talking about it. It wasn't just journalists. It was everybody you talked to about it was saying Bloomberg's going to run and he's just going to blow everyone out of the water with money. And I wonder whether... Are we so kind of hyper-capitalist now that it's not about the media being corrupt, it's about everybody being convinced that if somebody can come in with enough weight of, of financial power, then we all believe that they yes. can change.
1: Yes. I mean, there is a lot of evidence to that effect. And it's not illogical that we think that that's a reasonable theory of the game. In this instance, it came to its its limits. I mean, money may be able to do virtually everything except make Michael Bloomberg president. <laughs>
0: It's very good line. Okay, well, let's let's talk about the Sextator chapter because it it is one of my favorite chapters, obviously as someone who works at Spectator. And this all happened before my time, I should add. But I mean, you as an American became interested in the Spectator, why?
1: I think I first, maybe around 2000, Boris, who I didn't know, I'd never heard of, called me up and asked me to write something for the Spectator, as I recall. And, you know, whatever that, that was, and I don't even exactly remember, we had a, you know, a series of, of very nice chats, amusing, entertaining, really interesting. I, I had an immediate, I, I liked Boris um, at that moment in time. Certainly, who didn't? And Did then I, He was a, a star. Totally. I mean, he was in everything. I can't, couldn't even find a point of criticism. I mean, he seemed funny, smart, open, enjoyable. And then I wrote a piece for him. I, I wrote the first profile of Boris for a U.S. publication for Vanity Fair. And then the Sextator scandal started. Now, this has an interesting subtext to this, because I was at Vanity Fair, and Graydon Carter said, "Oh, go to London and do this, do this story. So I said, I am mean, great. You know, I knew, already knew a lot of the players. So I went over, had a great time doing this piece, came back, wrote this piece, which I think is, among other things, is very funny. So I enjoyed writing it. And as it happened, and for some reason in my own naivete, I didn't quite register this, that many of the protagonists in this story worked for Condé Nast. So... When I got back and I wrote the story and, and turned it in and then Graydon called me and he said, we can't run this story. And I said, what, what do you mean? You, we, we can't run this story. Well, you know, it's just the way of the world. So I always figured that I had been a kind of pawn in a political game, that Graydon had been jockeying with the people in Condé Nast in London at Vogue House and then he had traded me out is what I figured. Okay, you know, you give me what I want, we won't run this piece, which is, says all sorts of negative things about people who you know. And, you know, working in Vanity Fair was a very complicated court, and you sort of accepted these things because they were paying you so much money. And this piece has sat there. I mean, I've always liked this piece, and it has sat around in my... In fact, I don't even think I had electronic copy and hard copy for you know 15 or 16 or 17 years whatever it was and so when i was putting this book together i said aha finally a home
0: were you interested if i can ask a sort of boringly english question were you interested as an american about the class element in that piece because that it's something you touch on this idea that the spectator has a kind of glamour because it's associated with class which i think is sort of undeserved frankly But do Americans still have that? I think as a Brit, I think a lot of Brits think that Americans are more interested in English class than they actually are.
1: Yes, I think that's what we we think. Yes. But I was also interested in British class, but I was also interested in British sex which I think is it occupies a distinct place different from of the place it occupies in the US or New York.
0: Texas has its very own place in the class system.
1: And then I was interested, you know, I mean, in, you know, I thought this was a particularly fleet street tale.
0: Yes. Finally, I'd like to ask you a question about social media, which I think has been said before that social media means that we're all famous to 15 people rather than famous for 15 minutes. Do you think your subjects and the journalism that you've done—you are exploring a phenomenon that is dying. Essentially, I mean, it's a—it's a fascinating phenomenon, but now fame has been democratized, and that there are still the super famous, but it's not the same as it was, and they're going to lose their glamour and their mystique.
1: And the other point is that social media is one of the m- motors of social media—is to take these people down. <laughs>
0: yeah. So you you do think that's what's going on? You think that it's a war on fame?
1: Yes, very much, yes. The French Revolution, absolutely. But also social media is about fame
0: because it's all about... Yeah,
1: no, and the inverse on that is that one of the ways you become famous now is by taking the famous down. <laughs> yeah. So it is it is in some some way zero sum.
0: Yes. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the book. Too famous. I recommend everybody who listens to this podcast should buy it and read it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.